Welcome to Talking Humanitarianism. In this podcast, you will hear from a range of humanitarian researchers and practitioners sharing their reflections on different humanitarian issues, from conflict and disaster, migration and displacement, health and the environment, to humanitarian aid and governance. This podcast series is an initiative of the Research Network on Humanitarian Efforts of the Norwegian Centre for Humanitarian Studies. The NCHS is a collaboration between the Christian Mikkelsen Institute, the Peace Research Institute Oslo and the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs and is funded by the Research Council of Norway. Hello and welcome to our podcast on humanitarianism and transitions to a low carbon future. My name is Ekaterina Zhukova. I am senior lecturer at Lund University in Sweden. This podcast initiative is supported by the research network on humanitarian efforts of the Norwegian Center for Humanitarian Studies. NCHS is its abbreviation. And it is co-organized together with my colleague Antonio De Lauri, who is a research professor at Christian Mikkelsen Institute in Norway and also director of the NCHS. And today is my pleasure to welcome Christine Doughty, Associate Professor of Anthropology at University of Rochester in the United States. Christine works at the intersection of legal and environmental anthropology by looking at what kind of energy politics emerges in conflict-affected states and how international legal frameworks on human rights shape people's own efforts to rebuild their lives in the wake of conflict violence. And Christine's main field site has been Rwanda. A very welcome A very warm welcome to you, Christine. Thank you so much for having me. So let me start by asking you this question. What has brought you to studying energy or energy politics in humanitarian settings? Uh, First of all, just thanks so much again for having me. And I'm excited to talk about this work, uh, work that I've been doing in Rwanda since 2003. And I want to just quickly name also my my colleagues, Elise Uwimana and... uh, uh, and Dieudonné, uh, who has been working on this work with me since the beginning too. So I just want to be sure to name them, uh, to name them as well. So I began working in Rwanda uh, in 2003, which uh, is the second part of your question about what brought me to studying energy and humanitarian settings. I actually began by working in Rwanda, uh, thinking more broadly about how to understand the politics of reconciliation in the wake of the genocide. So myself, as with people from around the world and from Rwanda, was really interested in understanding uh, dynamics of the rebuilding of Rwanda in the wake of the genocide. And specifically, I ended up working on legal processes, trying to understand how, basically how people were rebuilding their lives in the crosshairs of international and national and local uh, efforts to rebuild. And I specifically happened to be there for my graduate dissertation work during the Gachacha process, which for those of you you know who might know, was the, the Rwandan government's uh, grassroots reconceptualized courts to handle genocide trials. So that's sort of the background of, of the, the longer term work that I've been doing in Rwanda. Mm-hmm. Then as I was back in the US and writing up that work and, and in a different stage of my own research, I, I had always heard about, I visited Lake Kivu, I'd heard about Lake Kivu having methane in it. And suddenly I kept seeing these articles in sort of various feeds, international and Rwandan 
uh, news feeds about uh, corporate efforts to extract methane from Lake Kivu. And so I started to sort of pay attention and got and, and sort of from that emerged this interest in uh, methane extraction, methane to energy projects on Lake Kivu. So Lake Kivu is a lake on the border of Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of Congo. It has very high levels of dissolved methane in the lower levels of the lake. It's been of interest to scientists in Rwanda and in Europe and the US and around the world um, you know, for a century basically, but really since sort of the 40s and 50s when Belgian scientists figured out with the Rwandan collaborators that they could extract methane uh, to use actually at the time to power fermentation at a, at a brewery. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, but really this became, the lake became of, of international and Rwandan national interest with the recognition that these dissolved layers of methane were perhaps dangerous. In the 1980s, there were two lakes in Cameroon that experienced what are called overturn events where dissolved gas in the lake escaped uh, Lake Nyos and Lake Manun with fatal consequences for people living on the lake shores. Mm-hmm. So scientists after that happened in the 80s sort of realized, gosh, Kivu has a thousand times more gas. What happens if the gas escapes? And so that sort of redoubled efforts to figure out what to do with the methane. So that became a real interest to me sort of on a lot of levels, uh, how these projects were emerging. You know, at some level, you know, when you look at these corporate projects, to extract methane uh, with the idea of, of, of sort of killing two birds with one stone, as you could say, um, to extract methane to make the lake more safe and also to provide power. That sounds fabulous. But I think anyone who's, you know, thought about sort of African history and African studies and energy projects in Africa to, or other regions, uh, to be sure, to think about European efforts to extract resources and justify them as saving Africans from themselves should you know, for me, they made the hair go up in the back of my neck, mm-hmm. um, made me anxious and made me wonder what more there was to the story. So at a very basic mm-hmm. level to your question, what brought mm-hmm. me to study this was, you know, I've had familiarity with Rwanda for a while. Suddenly there's this project getting international press about this risky lake and these, you know, these humanitarian scientists who, and, and, and not just scientists, but, uh, but, but profiteering corporate extractors who were going to save Rwandans from themselves by taking methane out of the lake. I just felt like there needed to be empirical and ethnographic attention to, to sort of historically contextualize this, socially and culturally contextualize um, this project. So that's a long answer to your short question. Yes, thank you so much. And you said it's an it was an ethnographic project. So I would like to ask what role of ethnography, what role ethnography plays in your work and what it has enabled you to learn? Uh, yeah, so I think as an anthropologist joined, working on this project, so ethnography is my main research method. And for those of you who might not know what ethnography is, it's it's sort of, it's qualitative research. I mean, ma- many other, many social scientists do work that are, that are sort of bits and pieces of ethnographic approaches, qualitative interviews, participant observation. I would say what makes it uh, maybe different than, than sort of surveys, it, it can build on those kinds of techniques, but is that it's longitudinal. So I've been working there for a long time. Um, I work both in Kinyarwanda and in French. My Kinyarwanda is not fluent, so I work with the translator, but it it takes language seriously. Um, it operates, I, I make a point to work across levels of scale and to try to, un- uh, and by that I mean, I work with uh, methane operators, with international scientists, with people in government, uh, with the Rwandan scientists and with Rwandans who live alongside the lake. So by that, I mean, it aims to understand the project from 
the point of view of people who live with it uh, mm -hmm. and from lots of different points of view, right? Not only, I don't simply say, okay, well, what, what do the people who are involved in doing the methane extraction, what do they think the effects of the project are, but rather really try to uh, understand from the lived experience of people there, mm -hmm. uh, their experiences of the project and how that changes over time. Mm -hmm. So I'd say that's one of the benefits uh, to doing ethnographic work. Um, and I, I would say that one of the other reasons that I think that ethnographic work is important for a project like this is, again, in addition to getting a range of perspectives and, and, and a range of perspectives over time, is, is that it explicitly is designed to sort of um, shed light on assumptions or denaturalize assumptions undergirding what's sort of at face value, uh, mm -hmm. which which is not to say that I see myself as an investigative journalist or that I'm trying to, you know, uncover something, but rather to think about, you know, what are the logics behind uh, behind the people who are extracting uh, mm -hmm. this methane? What are the sort of logics shaping the work of the scientists who are doing research on this lake? What are the political logics behind the governmental efforts to regulate this? Mm -hmm. And what are the the logics of the of the fishermen who use this lake and of the families and school teachers and community health workers and hotel owners who live mm -hmm. alongside the lake? And mm -hmm. what are the uh, stated and unstated uh, assumptions behind how they engage with the lake, mm -hmm. what they understand the lake to be, uh, and, and how do those different logics uh, come into conversation with each other? How do they conflict? Um, what can they reveal about each other? Mm -hmm. And if you could recall a few examples um, from the field about this logic, which ones um, come to your mind? Yeah, well, one, um, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about risk mm -hmm. because the uh, the justification for the project, as I said, is that uh, extracting methane from the lake is essential because it needs to, that is necessary to reduce the risk for the surrounding population. In fact, that uh, many, probably people listening know that when there's a, a corporate extraction project, the extractors need to fill out uh, what's called an economic and social impact assessment. Those ESIAs um, actually had, you know, they hire consultants to go in and do interviews and figure out sort of what the, you know, what the pros and cons of the project are. And there's a section within those, those impact analyses that's called the, the do nothing scenario, meaning what if we were to just not do this project? What you know, would that be, how would that be thinkable? And in both of the ESIAs that I reviewed for two of the companies that have concessions to do the extraction, it literally says the do nothing scenario is not an option because the, the perception based on the science in 2005 was that the risk was so high. Now, again, I'm not a, I'm not a gas or water scientist. I'm not trying to challenge their findings. I've been tracing the scientific discourse over time and I could talk about that later or, or mm -hmm. write about it later, but there are uh, shifting perceptions of that science and not everyone amongst in the scientific community who are experts, many of whom sit in Europe, not everyone agrees on whether that risk is, you know, what the temporality of that risk is, whether it's, uh, whether it's sort of quote real, but the point is the risk was used to mobile, the, the risk assessment was used to mobilize these projects in ways that render a critique of the project somewhat unthinkable. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and inoperable, right? So mm -hmm. it sort of suggests that the risk framework suggests that that any collateral damage to people living alongside the lake is just sort of necessary, right? Okay, so people's lives have to be displaced and maybe fishermen can't reach their boats anymore because of the methane extraction infrastructure. Oh, well, that's the, that's the price you have to pay for safety of the region, mm -hmm. right? Um, 
Meanwhile, when you talk to fishermen or talk to women who uh, sell the fish, because that's the gender division of labor, mm -hmm. or I, you know, we talk to school teachers around the lake and talk to them about, you know, I, I, again, part of the ethnographic approach, we don't begin with, what do you think of methane? We begin with, you know, what do you do for a living and what's your engagement with the lake? And, mm -hmm. you know, how, what, you know what, to, to begin with sort of where they're at and how does methane fit into that? Mm -hmm. When we talk to them about what do they see as risk? Basically, no one says, I'm afraid the lake's going to explode. They all say things like, you know, fishermen say things like the biggest risk to me is either the declining fish stocks that mean that I can't necessarily feed my family, or they say, you know, when I have to fish in these dugout canoes in the middle of the lake in the, in the rainy season uh, with, with the tremendously high winds that can come up, because uh, that, that region, Lake Kivu, has very high winds, uh, and in these bad storms, that's the biggest threat to my life, to my, to my life, you know? Mm -hmm. So my, my point is to say that, um, you know, asking these broader questions about risk brings into relief the competing definitions of risk. People also talk about, all, although a little bit more on the down low, about mm -hmm. their broader risks they feel, you know, politically, um, you know, with, with expressing alternative views in an authoritarian state, et cetera. So the point is, is a, I think the ethnographic approach and this project to me uh, really bring into relief the different ways people think about risk, which mm -hmm. again, which matters to humanitarian settings and post-conflict settings because of how we think about building sustainable peace broadly conceived and sort of mm -hmm. sa safety and people feeling, you know, at peace uh, mm -hmm. and matters to energy because, this risk narrative is being used to drive this energy project. Mm -hmm. And when you were talking about the do nothing scenario, you said that the discourse, scientific discourse has changed over time. And also because ethnography, you have been doing longitudinal ethnography. So I'd like to ask what time, how has time helped you also to trace the discourse that has changed over time? Yeah, I mean, some of it is, as I'm sure people know, you know, when you hang out on a project for a while and continue to talk to the same people over time, you can, you know, some of it you develop trust. I don't mean to say everybody trusts me just because I keep showing up, but I've, you know, I, I, you know, when you spend time in a place and you can talk to people over time, you can have sort of candid conversations. Um, in terms of tracking the science, I've also had the deep privilege of being invited by some of the scientists, both Rwandan and international, to come mm -hmm. participate in conferences and to participate in um, trainings of their students and Rwandan students to, to begin to see sort of how is scientific knowledge about the lake being produced, which mm -hmm. I'm also really interested in for this project because this actually relates to the, to the topic directly. I think energy politics um, are bound up with the politics of science to the extent that science and technology are, are implicated in energy politics. So, you know, what Dominic Boyer writes about as energo power, he's a, mm -hmm. uh, an American anthropologist, um, this idea of, it's a concept I play with a lot, energo power, uh, I, I think is a way, uh, the way I think about it in relation to this project is sort of bringing together of science, political power and, and corporate logics. And so mm -hmm. all of those interact together as sort of energy politics. And I'm interested in seeing how those mm -hmm. react with and are used by and, and interact with the politics of reconciliation in Rwanda. Mm -hmm. But precisely to answer your question about change over time, I think, um, in seeing change over time, I think it helps us not just take projects at face value for what their intended goals are. It's a little bit like what's de jure versus de facto, right? You sort of can have ideas, but unintended things happen and people are messy around the world. And so the, the, the goals we set out don't always happen that way. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of science, I mean, scientific knowledge changes. We know this. I, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a 
you know, I believe, I believe in science, I believe in, you know, I, I but, but I also, you know, we see these things change. And so, for example, in this project in 2005, uh, a really important uh, paper came out uh, by Martin Schmid and a whole host of other authors that basically argued, I, I refer to it as the the graph that launched a thousand methane extraction projects. It argued that methane levels were rising in the lake at at faster levels, you know, it showed a, a steeply rising curve suggesting that saturation, excuse me, that the methane saturation would reach the sort of saturation level uh, within a century. And that's important because if it's fully saturated, then the, then the uh, external energy needed to uh, destabilize the lake suddenly reduces, right? When it's, when it's low levels of methane, you can have potentially an earthquake or a volcanic eruption and, and the lake can absorb it. If you have, if you're closer to the saturation point, it takes less to trigger an outgassing. At least that's the theory. So that, that 2005 study is what, at least if, at least if I mark it temporally, that's when you suddenly start seeing that set study cited everywhere by scientists, by government members, by corporate extractors, by these, uh, the economic and social impact analyses. Okay, fast forward to 2017, mm -hmm. and I was at a conference that was brought together by the Lake Kivu Monitoring Project, which is the government monitoring body set up by Rwanda, funded by the Dutch, mostly the Dutch mm -hmm. embassy, to oversee the methane extraction, which is being done. Uh, the first company is an American company um, that's funded by the African Development Bank and other funders. But at this conference, which brought together international scientists, Rwandan scientists, Congolese scientists, the, they were presenting new research about gas levels on the lake and what what went uh, clearly presented, but also sort of, I don't want to say unnoted, but it was not sort of, uh, nobody was there like, you know, blowing mega horn, like fog horns or, or you know, shaking like blah, 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 to like get people's attention was that, that they actually think those, that that study uh, had some problems to it. And, 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 and the original author was there and all the authors who've been doing this work. And they basically all said, oops, that was based on faulty measurements. The methane levels are actually steady. They're not rising. Mm -hmm. So, and then since then, they've actually published the research uh, in, it was published sort of internally in 2019 and then, and then in a scientific journal in I think 2020, that there is no evidence that the methane levels are rising rapidly along the lake. They seem to actually be steady state. So to what I said about risk before, if you then back up and imagine, okay, so what if that do nothing scenario? Now that doesn't mean the lake is not, it doesn't mean that methane is not a risk in the lake, but it means that sort of apocalyptic scenarios that were being imagined are perhaps not as apocalyptic as they were. That said, you know, again, I'm not a water scientist. And of course I want with, with every part of my soul for the people living in the Kibu Basin to be safe. I don't mean to minimize um, that risk, but as you know, given my interest in sort of how corporate actors and political actors can use discourses of risk, the fact that the science is now shifting around what the risk actually is or might be uh, is interesting. And now, so now, but, but meanwhile, of course, the methane, you know, once you, once you label something, a natural resource, once you set up infrastructure to extract it, once you have investments in doing these projects, the sort of political will, the economic capital, the actual infrastructure has already been mobilized to do this extraction. It's not going to stop. Um, it's been sort of unleashed at, even as the science has shifted. So again, I think that just uh, is, a, is again, an, yet another reason to sort of pause as we think about these projects around the world and think about what kinds of political and social and, and scientific work are being done to render thinkable and unthinkable certain kinds of projects. Mm -hmm. And 
you mentioned one concept, energy power, right? But you also introduced your own concept together with your colleagues that you have uh, mentioned at the beginning, right? Green mm -hmm. instructive humanitarianism. And I find it a very fascinating concept. So I would like to ask you to talk a little bit more about it. How have sure. you come to it? What does it mean? Yeah, great. So again, with um, Elise Uimana and Diorene uh, Uise, we uh, wrote this piece. Um, I think I may have missed said their names at the beginning, and I apologize for that. It's because it's morning for me, and I haven't had all, enough of my coffee. Um, <laughs> but we wrote a piece for the um, African Studies Review where we played with this concept um, that we call green extractive humanitarianism that comes from the idea of extractive, uh, extractive humanitarianism that was put forward by Lori Leonard and Siba Gravogri, who are two... Um, uh, social scientists working at Cornell. Mm -hmm. And Leonard and Grovogui talk about extractive humanitarianism to think about the ways that extractive projects have fairly recently um, come to be framed as sort of for the public benefit or for the social welfare of the population. Mm -hmm. So an industry that typically used to sort of not care about their social impacts that uh, increasingly in, in the I, they argue that, especially in the global South, uh, with the fall of communism, the retreat of the developmentalist state, that corporate efforts to extract natural resources come to be framed in relation to sort of noble intentions. Mm -hmm. uh, we can think about this. It's, it's similar to other concepts like philanthropic capitalism, mm -hmm. but it's focused specifically on extractive projects that seem to be justified as forms of social welfare. So you know, I, we read about their work, and that seemed um, actually quite fitting to some of the ways that that this methane extraction gets framed in the international press. I, you can you know, look at online articles about it from mm -hmm. 2016, 15, 14, and you see that, that the company Kivuwa that's, uh, that's doing the extraction gets described as noble uh, and with all these sort of laudatory words. So we, we, this seemed like a fitting uh, connection. But, and the thing that we tried to um, bring, sort of push a little bit further forward about their, their idea that seemed to come out of uh, the work in Rwanda is that when you, when you add, when you consider these projects, these extractive humanitarian projects also as quote green mm -hmm. or quote renewable or you know good for the earth, I'm putting all these in sort of air quotes, then the it seems like the, the discursive work that that the sort of noble intentions does goes even further. So mm -hmm. in Rwanda, the framing of this project, the methane extraction, is both that it's going to save people from the potentially exploding lake and that it's going to provide electrification to people in a region without electricity, but also that it's that it's just, uh, even though methane is a fossil fuel, right? Mm -hmm. It gets framed as renewable. Um, it gets framed as good for the earth. Mm -hmm. uh, because it's, it's these are, you know, I'm sort of quoting from pe things people have told me or articles mm -hmm. that I've read about it. They mm -hmm. say, you know, it prevents methane from escaping into the atmosphere. They say that it's, um, that it's renewable because the methane is being generated by the volcanoes. So there's sort of an effort to, 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 to sort of play both sides, right, and, and have this methane project sit on the side of, quote, good projects like solar or wind or hydro mm -hmm. that are sort of seen as like cleaner and greener. Um, and and this, I would, what we argue in the piece is that this sort of bringing together the green and the, the humanitarian makes it so everybody's like, of course, it's amazing. And it just sort of insulates it from critique um, from people both inside and outside fairly powerfully. And mm -hmm. it, and it insulating from critique is you know, fraught for the reasons I described before, that it means that people who perhaps have critique are told, well, basically, this is good for the collective, so you need to just deal with it. And 
also this is happening in a in a region in a country where as many have written there's already almost no political space for dissent so this mm-hmm. You know, what we're trying to, to, to suggest is that this operates in a particular way in Rwanda, but I think it's a concept that we can think about much more widely for thinking about what questions should be asked of projects that are wind projects or hydropower projects or solar projects or biogas mm-hmm. or these other things that are seen as sort of good energy projects mm-hmm. around the world. Because, and many have made this argument, uh, but just because it's, quote, good energy doesn't mean it's necessarily escaping the logics of uh, of extraction mm-hmm. that that have driven the fossil fuel industry and that have driven, you know, colonial extractive efforts mm-hmm. uh, in, in the global south and and north, you know, more broadly. So really, what we're what we're trying to say is that you know the early work on on this, the early external writing on this methane project were just so laudatory, and we're trying to push back a little bit and say, hold on a second, is this you know just labeling it as you know good for people and green doesn't actually mean that it's operating through any different logics than the than the coal mine you know somewhere else or the or the oil drill uh, mm-hmm. somewhere else mm-hmm. and what role would be for the actors of energo power such as scientists politicians uh, corporate actors how do they um, navigate this uh, logics that uh, it's actually a fossil fuel but it's presented as a renewable energy what role do they play in that that's a great question. I feel like if I could answer that question, I would like get a Nobel Prize. So I'm not <laughs> sure that I, I'm not sure that I fully. I don't mean to be like an academic who disavows practical impacts of my work, but I also feel like if I, if we really could solve that, we would live in a world that looks you know radically different than the one we live in, which you know is the world that I that I hope we can live in. So mm-hmm. I guess uh, without being too sort of flippant or too basic, I would say. Um, I think, well, well, I'll say it this way, you know, because I do work with scientists involved in this project and they simultaneously um, will say, well, this makes a lot of sense, but also say, yeah, but like, this is what the science says. And like, yeah, but this is better than not having power in the region. And that's true. And, or that, that you know, that could be true for people. I think, um, you know, it's the same kind of critical skills we teach our students, right? Like don't take things at face value, you know, ask more questions. Mm-hmm. And very importantly, ask questions of the people impacted by the projects, right? Like ask, engage with the people living, take seriously the perspectives of the people living alongside the lake. Um, you know, early on in the project, as another ethnographic example, though this is not just early on, up until my most recent visits, you know, people sitting at, at the lakeside still say, you know, we don't have power. They literally point and say, you know, the methane is coming out and they point overhead and say, it goes up these wires and then it goes over there. And they point to, you know, it goes to Kigali, it goes to Uganda, it goes to South Sudan. That's changing, and the government is actively uh, building out infrastructure uh, and electrification for people throughout the country. And I don't want to dismiss that, but the point is, you know, we, we know this from projects and humanitarian projects and, and development projects around the world that often um, there's often people who get overlooked and marginalized and dispossessed. And so, you know, I think this story is both similar to that, you know, in, in predictable ways, but also. Um, maybe maybe some of the seductiveness of the high techness and the greenness and the renewable energy and this like really sexy project on this lake um can make people think it's sort of too good to be true and and i would say that maybe maybe we should you know continue to look a little bit closer i i, I know i'm rambling on and on but i wanted to add one thing that really struck me early on um i had this epiphany at one point in the project uh when i was talking to colleagues and actually giving a talk to some scientists where i realized that well I guess I would argue that the scientific model of the lake mirrors the 
political model of the body politic. And by that, what I'll say is that the, the sort of scientific model of the lake is that you have this highly stratified lake where at the bottom you have this dissolved methane that's really dangerous. Mm -hmm. And you and in fact, the density of the upper layers of the lake, this is the sort of the chemical composition, holds down, tamps down that dangerous threat at the bottom. Mm -hmm. And the role of the top of the lake is to like hold it down and prevent the escape of this dangerous threat lurking in the deep waters. And I would say that anybody who has spent time or thought about, you know, the sort of political dynamics of contemporary Rwanda, that seems like an apt metaphor, right? Of this like, this like ruling elite that is in a fairly heavy handed way, applying pressure to the, to the sort of mass population where there's sort of, I mean, the government, you know, governance in Rwanda is preoccupied with the idea that there's a hidden threat deep within the population of the lower levels that could escape and explode, right? So the notion that the, the that the scientific imaginary and the political imaginary are so uh, overlaying on each other um, is again one of the reasons that I think beginning to examine these assumptions and undo and, and sort of unearth them a bit and and begin to disentangle what that means, what work does that model do? What work does that scientific model do to justify certain kinds of political interventions, technological interventions, economic interventions, certain kinds of inequalities in the country, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And if you could recall now, what was the most rewarding moment of your fieldwork in Rwanda? Most rewarding, gosh, that's gonna be, that's a hard one because there's, <laughs> there's so many, I mean, Oh, one of the most rewarding. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I guess in terms of rewarding moment or like an aha, I mean, one of the, I would say from being out of the field, one of the ahas was exactly that one where I was like giving, you know, talking to people about the project and was like, well, wait a minute, I'm saying this, I'm looking at this scientific model and it looks like the way people describe politics. So as like a, like a empirical thing that sort of emerged out of the evidence that I now, you know, continue to talk with scientists and with people in Rwanda about, uh, and scientists in Rwanda about, uh, that was really sort of intellectually engaging. I think um, one of the other things uh, th that I thought about a lot is this idea of converting a threat to a benefit and sort of thinking with this conversion narrative and what it means to, con to as I said at the beginning, sort of killing two birds with one stone, mm -hmm. to convert a threat into a benefit, uh, sort of again conceptually what work that does uh to motivate this project and i am I, I mean I'm, i don't mean to be dodging the question in the sense that i'm now about to pull us to new york state for a second i the, the reason there's no one best model in rwanda is i just love walking working in rwanda and, and it's mm -hmm. complicated but just every you know I, I spend days and months um talking to people in their homes and walking along the lake shore and uh, talking with such a, a wide range of people is just always uh, I just, as an ethnographer, always feel like it's such a gift. So mm -hmm. I feel like every moment like that, I sound like, you know, like I'm being very Pollyanna, but all of that feels really tremendously meaningful to me. I, one of the recent um, sort of intellectual, not epiphanies, but intellectual shifts that I had in relation to this project was when having come back from Rwanda and working in upstate New York, I was driving past um, uh, actually a landfill, like a dump that's located mm -hmm. not terribly far from from where I live and realized that it has a methane to power project associated with the landfill. So mm -hmm. uh, I, I started drawing sort of connections between understanding what are the broader logics of methane projects, and not comprehensively around the world, but really thinking about what is what's at stake with methane projects as distinct from natural gas or wind or solar. And, and this goes back to the conversion of threat to benefit. That same discourse is there, 
for mm -hmm. projects that extract methane gas from landfills and convert it to power, right? So we see the same converting a threat to a benefit, which we don't see. That's not how it. It's not how they narrate hydropower. It's not how we narrate wind. It's not how we narrate solar. We're not converting a, the threat of the sun into something, right? We're but so it's. It, I don't want to say it's unique to methane, uh, but because I don't, I, you know, there might be counterexamples, but it seems consistent because uh, the way they narrate these landfill projects, landfill gas projects, is that uh, it's you know you have to methane gets produced uh, by the decomposition in landfills, and they. Uh, at least in the U.S. since the 70s, they've been regulating it. I imagine probably it started being regulated much sooner in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, but now, in a, in, instead of only capping it or flaring it for the past 10, 20 years, they've been, uh, but but especially uh, in more recent years in the U.S. with incentives from, from governments, they've been trying to, uh, you know, extract it and convert it to power. And so it gets framed as, you know, protecting the environment and saving emissions from going into the, you know, greenhouse gas emissions and, you know, going into the, into our atmosphere, et cetera. So, but again, you know, what that does is create perverse incentives for us to throw more stuff in the trash, right? There's like a disincentive to compost or a disincentive to recycle, a disincentive to reduce our consumption patterns in the U S and mm -hmm. to just use less and to consume less and an incentive to instead throw more stuff in these landfills in order to generate more electricity. Mm -hmm. So this, um, I, I, again, thinking ethnographically and, and comparatively, uh, I both focus in Rwanda, but looking at other regions as well, helps sort of turn it on its head and see both what's unique to this project in this lake in the middle of, of, uh, of Rwanda and the Congo and the center of Africa, but also uh, see how this these other logics might be at play in other places as well. Mm -hmm. And this brings me also to question of what are you working now and what would you like to work in the future? Would you like to continue on this topic or would you like to do something else? Yeah, so what I'm working on now is a book manuscript, uh, which I think might explain why my brain is um, simultaneously thinking big and small and like a, in what I, I imagine is more confusing to people outside my head than it is to me right now. <laughs> but I'm working on a book manuscript on, finally uh, on the Rwanda work on this on this project, mm -hmm. but trying to also explicitly bring into play the comparison with upstate New York. So I'm thinking through in that manuscript, um, ethnographically and empirically, this this methane extraction project on Lake Kivu, but thinking conceptually with the ideas of energy waste and capture mm -hmm. uh, in order to try to think through some of the same things we've talked about here um, and extractive humanitarianism, et cetera, but also to think about how uh, questions of, you know, since methane is sort of produced through waste and decomposition, what, what analytically does that help us to understand about disposability of people um, and and who matters and who doesn't matter and how we can think about much like I said before that the the scientific imaginary mirrors the body politic how to sort of overcome the separation of nature and culture but to think more with how sometimes our implicit ideas about um, what's natural shape how we think about um, political formations as well so to bring the environmental and the political together um, in this manuscript so hopefully that hopefully that will um, be out before you know will we'll come to fruition. Uh, before too much more time. And then I'm also doing work in upstate New York around these energy projects and visiting these landfills and trying to think more about the energy landscapes in my own setting, which is not necessarily a, a sort of a conflict zone in, in ways that we can sometimes think about it. But um, I would say the American political landscape is uh, nothing if not fraught with conflict these days. Mm -hmm. And upstate New York is uh, you know, a particular kind of, uh, of example of American 
political conflict. And so, and again, I don't mean to dismiss uh, uh, or dilute what conflict mm -hmm. means, but I think thinking more broadly about, you know, the ways that energy gets mobilized, energy and landscapes, mm -hmm. um, landscapes get deemed as sort of wasted or wasteful landscapes get mobilized as parts of energy projects is something that I see close to home in addition in Rwanda. So trying to continue to keep them into conversation, not as an arbitrary comparison, but as a way to keep, um, yeah, just to keep learning from each other, you know, what's particular to a space and what's what's more generalizable. I also mm -hmm. have been doing work on the effects of uh, mass incarceration in the U.S. on everyday life, and that it shapes how I'm thinking about carcerality and capture, which is a theme in the book as well. So I, with those two main projects going on right now, I think I've got myself committed for a while. And so I, um, at the moment, that's really what I see myself continuing to work on. But, you know, as I narrated at the beginning, the way I, I sort of stumbled onto this project in particular on the methane extraction was just staying engaged in Rwanda and sort of paying attention. And the way I always come to projects through the empirical, mm -hmm. through something where I say, gosh, that thing that's happening is really interesting. I want to go talk to people and learn more about it. And I am very certain that something like that will present itself uh, in, in the coming months and years that will capture my attention uh, and I'll hopefully have the capacity to work with other people to, to ask questions about it and learn more. Mm -hmm. And what you also show uh, in your field, uh, close to home, that humanitarianism itself uh, has to be reconceptualized because it's not no longer conflict and disaster in a traditional sense, but uh, it can also change um, its uh, modus operandi and uh, form and shape. Uh, uh, it, it has to be a, a kind of uh, apocalypse, but the slow mm -hmm. apocalypse. Yeah, well, and I'll just add to that. I think that, you know, for me as an American working on this project, you know, I, I was in Rwanda for the semester in the fall of 2016. I was there when uh, President Trump was elected. And and I will say that, you know, I feel a deep complicity. I mean, there's always questions of complicity as a, as a you know, Northern uh, ethnographer working in, in Africa. And, and, but, but there's, a, and, and I don't want to exonerate uh, US empire at any stage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I think certainly for me, the the ways this project has unfolded, I have felt very grateful to have a uh, National Science Foundation, U.S. grant money to be paying attention uh, to a U.S. company that is uh, doing this in Rwanda and to find um, ways of both understanding sort of scientifically and analytically what's going on, but also just to be sort of watching and to be trying to use whatever uh, capacity I have to try to think with people about you know, about the stakes of these entanglements. So I, I say that just to say that uh, I think understanding um, Americans, you know, I think for myself, specifically American interventions internationally, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. trying to think them through both uh, at their, uh, you know, at, at, at the ranges of sites of, of power, right? Both, you know, in the U.S. where they germinate and uh, in the center of the lake where they, mm -hmm. uh, where they perhaps come to fruition. I think holding that scale uh, into, into the same frame is, is an important piece of how I think about the work. Mm -hmm. I wish you best of luck with your new project. Thank you so much for coming uh, to me and talking to me today. I would like to uh, remind our listeners that our precious guest today was Christine Doughty, Associate Professor of Anthropology at University of Rochester in the United States. And if you would like to know more about humanitarianism, please visit our website www.humanitarianstudies.no and we will be back. Goodbye for now.